Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, talking about a very undertold story in Canadian history today, that of one of the only two officially recorded lynchings in Canadian history. This one took place in February 1884 on Sumas Prairie, British Columbia, an indigenous young man named Louis Smith was lynched by a mob of vigilantes. And it is the subject of Chad Reimer's new book, Deadly Neighbors, A Tale of Colonialism, Cattle Feuds, Murder, and Vigilantes in the Far West. Now, you may remember Chad was on the show a couple of years ago talking about his book on the trials of Albert Strobel. And this book does touch on some of the same themes, uh, in particular, the idea of Canada as the peaceable kingdom. And how true is that? And how much is violence embodied in Canadian history and uh, certainly the, the culture of the Canadian West? There's so much going on here in this one case that speaks to some of these broader, bigger narratives that exist within Canadian history. So this discussion, we talk really about these themes and the themes of Canadian history. And of course, one of the main ones that is present in this book, and of course, throughout Canadian history is colonialism. How big of a role did colonialism, colonial violence play in this particular story? And similarly, how does this story help inform us about some of the larger issues associated with colonialism, the danger that it presented, the threat that it was both culturally and physically to indigenous people across what is now Canada. This is one of those cases where you you do have this micro history of this one specific event that speaks to so many broader narratives. So uh, I, I was really thrilled to have the chance to explore those themes with Chad. We don't get into the, the nitty gritty of the case itself of, of the lynching. This is really more of the, a thematic discussion. If you're interested in the specifics of what's going on, certainly check out the book because Chad does great research, gets really into the specifics, uncovers a lot of what's going on while also addressing those broader themes that come up. So it really is a, a tightrope walk that Chad has to do throughout the course of the book. And as was the case with Albert Strubble, he does it very, very well. I really enjoyed the discussion. I hope you will as well. So let's get right into my chat with Chad Reimer. All right, and Chad Reimer joins me now. Chad, welcome back to the show. Thanks for doing this again. Thanks for having me again. Uh, very excited to get into this. So as I said off the top, the book is entitled Deadly Neighbors. Uh, certainly different tone from the last time we had you on talking about the, the Strobel book, but the title certainly is evocative and there's a lot going on in this book. So before we get into some of the specifics of it, uh, you know, I'm always curious. This is a, one of those stories that I didn't really know anything about, hadn't, hadn't heard of it. So how did you come of, come across the story and what made you think that there was some something there that you wanted to tell? I came across it pretty much the same time I came across the Albert Strobel story. And that was while I was doing research for my now, not last book, the book before, um, before we lost the lake on um, the history of Sumas Lake. And, you know, that immersed me in all the, the material and primary resources and literature on events that were happening in Sumas, Sumas Prairie, through the late, latter part of the 
19th century. And I came across these two instances, these two events that first started each one as an article, but then each one grew into a book. And this one was, uh, it has been written about before. And it, in 1884, the lynching of a 15-year-old Sumas indigenous boy just north of the border, north of where the Huntington a border crossing is now. And it was one of only two recorded, verified recorded lynchings in Canadian history. And I thought, okay, well, I, I, I want to kind of pocket that. Now, I do want to get back to it because there hasn't been something research-based, scholarly-based on it done in some time. And so then I did get back to it, and I kept getting more and more material as I dug into it, particularly material south of the border in the United States, and then material here in, in the provincial archives. And I found that the story was far more complex than it was usually told as, and that it wasn't simply an isolated event that uh, came out of nowhere, was a surprise, and that was really had more to do with the, the United States than us because the mob that came up to murder Louis Sam, which is the Sumas boy's name, it did come up from south of the border, from Nooksack. And they were, they believed that Louis Sam had murdered one of their community members, one of their neighbors, a fellow by the name of James Bell. A couple of days after that, they came up, grabbed Louis Sam, who had been arrested by Canadian authorities, and took him and, and, and hanged him. Now, the, the literature usually says, well, that's really everything's, it's all caused in the States. This is an American tradition. And that's, you know, what the cause of it was. And the further I dug into it, the more I realized that this wasn't just some isolated foreign event that came out of nowhere, that it was part of a, a whole process, really, the process of colonization and white settlers coming in, white immigrants coming in, and making the land their own, taking it, dispossessing the people who, who were here, the, the indigenous peoples, and setting up their own societies. And that process, we don't like to think of it, uh, Canadians, uh, to think of ourselves as colonizers. We think of ourselves as the colonized. The British were the colonizers. Hmm. But the hard work of colonialism was done by so-called settlers taking up the land. And my, my primary goal was to look at how this process, to see how this process looked on the ground. And the lynching was part of that. It was part of a series of violent events that showed just what it looked like for indigenous peoples and for, for white immigrants as they're setting up a new, a brand new, new sovereignty, brand new society. It's interesting to think about it in those terms, right? Because you do have this major conflict in the region at the time. It was so many competing interests there, obviously between the indigenous population that had been there for thousands of years, this incoming wave 
of colonial settlers and the the tensions that the internal tensions that they bring of across the border, but even internally uh, it, within those communities and and all of that 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 represents. And what do you think it says about Canada and maybe Canadian history? And just because you, you kind of alluded to it the imagination of what Canada is, you know, we, we use terms like peaceable kingdom all the time that a case like this or lynching in general is not associated with broadly Canadian history that we don't think of our past as one of violence uh, or it's not presented typically as one of violence. And yet here is a explicit case of violence but as you mentioned the entire colonial process is or was and is a form of violence against a, a very specific group of people particularly amongst historians but also more broadly in our kind of national myth our founding myths is the notion of british north american and then canadian history as a history of benevolent conquest that our expansion of British and then Canadian power uh, across the continent, you know, say even just after Confederation with the founding of the Northwest Mounted Police and out into the prairies and into British Columbia, that there was, there was the notion that our conquest did not involve the kind of violence that we saw south of the line, that in, on the American frontier, you see violence between settlers all the time, and lynching was part of that. You also saw official wars where the American army is engaged in fighting uh, indigenous peoples. And this is all true. There is no doubt that there was a great deal of violence. But it, it, it's, it's become such a touchstone part of our mythology. And it has, it has prevented us from seeing just exactly what was done and that, you know, often you don't need straight out to show the violence for the people who are on the receiving end of it to know that there is violence, that there is, there is a power that's held behind this, you know, this steel hand and the velvet glove. And that for Indigenous people, the, the notion that it wasn't a violent process well, they've been telling us for decades that it wasn't. And we, we know now, we're finally waking up now, the residential school stories, the, the missing and, and, and murdered Indigenous women stories. These are very recent, and they go back through our history. It's, it, it, it was there, but our myths have blinded us to them. Let's get in a little bit to some of the specifics here. You mentioned uh, Louis Sam, uh, the, the young man who is... Uh, lynched by this mob and, and so he's accused of something so I, i'm curious as you go in to assess this situation and, and this story what type of evidence do you have available to you recognizing that given the context of what we just talked about that the biases that existed of those who would have been creating official reports and even unofficial reports of this uh, were such that it might not have uh, presented Louis in the greatest of lights. H how do you come into this as a historian, looking at it retroactively and assess the information and evidence that's available to you? I'm very used to, to tackling a situation where the records show 
in a very slanted way. All records are, are products of the people who produced them and the times and so forth. Some better, some worse, of course. And that, as the saying goes, history is written by the winners. But one gets, one gets, I mean, I look at history as a craft and that you get better at it the more you do it. And, and looking at even the court records, which is what are one source, you can learn how to read them in a way that you can see what they're trying to hide and what not. In the case of Louis Sam, there unfortunately was not a trial. That's, that's always the, the, the best thing uh, for a historian is when a violent crime is followed by a trial. And so that's what we'll see in the, in the, in the attempted lynching a year after Louis Sam was murdered. There was a long hearing. And so we have witnesses telling us, indigenous witnesses telling us what went on. In the Louis Sam case, there was never any trial and there was never any full investigation. So we don't even have those official accounts. We have the newspapers, of course, and they can be helpful different ways. We have the coroner's report, which had the eyewitnesses to the events telling us things. But we actually got fortunate because there was a, an undercover police operation funded and, and rolled out by the, the, the then superintendent of provincial police, a fellow by the name of Todd. And he, ha he ha ended up hiring four men, three of whom were, were American private detectives, hiring them some weeks after the lynching to go undercover and interview south of the line, interview people who were involved in, in the lynching, who were in the lynch mob, to involve their neighbors, to interview their neighbors. And we have at least some of their reports that come out. So that was a, 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 a source that never saw the light of day at the time. And I believe that there were reports that did not survive. And it gave us a view that we usually do not get in, in, in an event like such as this. I'm curious within all that, how much access was there? How much information was there about Louis Sam himself? Like, did you get a sense of who he was uh, as a person? Or is he really focused on in these documents as obviously the victim of the mob, but also potentially mm. within these documents as a perpetrator? Like, is he, is there an attempt almost to convince themselves of the justification for what happened? The big challenge that one has in trying to get at the other side of the history is that, no, I don't know much about who Louis Sam was as, a, as an individual, nor about most of the other indigenous individuals. I don't even know how tall he was. He would have not have been tall. But it's a similar situation to my the last book, where the victim of the murder, we don't learn much about him because the trial is about the perpetrator. And in a way, the story to be told about Louis Sam as a, as a person, about his father who was persecuted unjustly, prosecuted unjustly, died in prison. And in a lot of ways, it was his improper prosecution that made 
white settlers accuse Louis Sam of murder. That those those are those are not my stories to investigate. Those those are voices I do not pretend to know to be able to to get to know. And it's a story, and in a lot of ways, that the Samath have to, have to tell themselves if they wish to, or if they wish to settle amongst themselves. And so I try, and I I don't make claims for something that I, I'm a, unable to do, and that is to to pierce the the, the personal life of of most of the indigenous individuals there. When it comes to white settlers, considering that I am an inheritor of the society that we live in, to me that gives me the the grounds upon which to investigate the individuals involved, to see why they acted, how they acted. And I'm trying to get at the a picture of how this colonialism is taking place. So pragmatically, of course, it's much easier to to get sources on people like Thomas York. One has to be persistent and one has to be imaginative. But, you know, it pays off. So nobody knew that Thomas York was an ex-convict. He's one of the founders, pioneer, you know, sterling pioneers of our society. Nobody knew that William Campbell was an army deserter and that in another situation he would have been shot. And that's what brought him to British Columbia. These people have histories. These people have pasts. And they are regular people and faulty people. It's not the case that British Columbia attracted the best and brightest from the British Empire. We are the farthest away from London. It it was both positive that we didn't attract the top classes, because that gave other classes the opportunity to move into upwardly social. But also, we got the cast-offs. And so that's a part of our history, too, that we have to examine the, the precious myths of, of the founding of our society. That leads to the question of the individuals who you did have access to or more access to. And of course, those would be the members of the mob, the people who showed up to carry out this this act. We, we talked about it a little bit earlier, the sense that popularly, there's a, a, a sensibility that is very much an American thing. It's It's a group of people from south of the border who are coming up to conduct this. But from what you've researched, who were these people and what galvanized them to this point? Because obviously they can talk about that they pinned a murder or a death of one of their neighbors on this kid. But based on the reaction, when you read the book, it becomes apparent that it wasn't just that or, or even that particular story. That if it, it, it really comes across as more of a powder keg situation that uh, this sort of just lit something amongst this group of people. Yes, I mean it was a it was a society that was not well formed, just like in British Columbia. It had not been living; these people had not been living together for for a good amount of time, so that you establish patterns of what you should do, shouldn't do, and so forth. Nor were the the patterns of ownership and power established. 
these people came out on both sides of the border. And the border really didn't matter that much at the time, whether somebody ended up north or south. In, they were there to get land, to get land, to have a better life based upon land ownership, opening their businesses, having power within this new society. And so there was this, within this still forming society, there was a jockeying for power. And they could be as deadly against one another as they could against indigenous people. And there was nothing mystical or inherent about the differences between Americans and Canadians. Many of the leading lights south of the line, many of the men who, who were in the forefront of the vigilante mob were born in Canada. They went to the United States for a little bit, and they just kept going until they found some land that they could settle on. But they were Canadian in, in the sense of where they were born and, and, and grew up. And they were just as readily willing to take the rope in their hand as, the one, as Americans, somebody who had been born in the United States. The lynching thing was, it's because, yes, borders make a difference. Law systems make a difference. But south of the line, it was always an option that was there. In most societies that were set up, it was an option that the, the, the dominant people, white people, held in their hand to use. And so it, it, it's almost as if it never became, oh, yeah, we have to think about it and have a, have a meeting to discuss that this instance justifies a lynching because right. they don't. <laughs> they have a meeting yeah. to plan it. Yeah. And talk of lynching follows almost reflexively off after, you know, a surprising, surprising number of murders. South of the line, whereas north of the line, it's, it's not that tool that's right there. It's, it's, it's not that, you know, the, 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 you know, your hammer that's just right close that you can right. grab. And the discourse is different as well. So sure. the real difference, and talk again about Canadian mythologies, we like feeling more, you know, very good about ourselves. We, we like feeling that we are somehow pure, more moral than the Americans. If the United States wasn't there, we would have to invent them so that we could feel good about ourselves. Right. And this is, you know, one of those things. Oh, we don't have lynching, but the United States does. And it's a razor's edge that, you know, the same people in British Columbia who wouldn't form a mob to go off and get someone they thought should be hanged, as soon as they step across the line, they would. And it's very possible they did. Considering how many people were in the lynch mob, it's very possible, I would say, likely, that part of that lynch mob was from. Canada, and that Canadian, British Columbian residents rode with it. Now, it's as I say, it, at the time, it really didn't matter to the white settlers what side of the line they were on. They, they moved back and forth uh, all the time. Americans lived in, in, in Sumas Prairie. Canadians lived in Nooksack Valley. And the people taking part in these events wouldn't have said, oh, gee, I went across the border to now, now I can consider lynching. The societies on both sides of the border were involved in very much the same thing. 
and that is forming a new political and economic system with hopefully me on top or me in the, in the middle. And that's what they were doing on land that, that was new to them, among people yeah. that were new to them, and people who, though, looked like them. Because if they didn't, then they w- didn't belong in this new society. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, too, to think of the border there, yes. particularly there, it's made up. Like, it's it's just, it's not real. Like, there's no real reason why it's there. So certainly culturally, that area is going to be more similar than, say, it, this is true today, right? Than Halifax to Vancouver. Vancouver is going to have a lot more in common with Seattle. And it's just sort of the reality of it, right? That, that regional north-south, uh, there's going to be a lot of commonality there. But how conscious of it? This is something I'm always curious about, right? Because we could talk about the formation of the society and certainly the violence that comes along with it. And these individuals kind of jockeying for position as, as they, they form the society that, that eventually is being built. It, it, you know, they're really in the, the process of colonizing this area. How conscious of, of that are they? Are, are they outwardly saying, like, it's either me or them, right? And so I'm going to try to make it me. Are they outward doing that? Or, or is this all kind of cached in the way we see it a lot of times at the mm-hmm. government level, at the official level, mm-hmm. that it's cached in this very paternalistic, uh, let's all live together, we can all get along kind of way. Or are they just out there saying, no, like, it's me or them and I'm picking me? Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> that, that's the thing about what academics have been calling settler colonialism as opposed to, say, military colonialism. You know, in, in, a, in a military colonial situation, you have an army, and the army goes into a new area, and you know who the agents of those colonizations were. And why, why are they doing that? They're doing that because they're following orders, and they believe they're doing that for the greater of their empire. Well, in settler colonialism, the, the agents are these people who want to come into this land and make it their home. And and why are they doing it? They're not doing it for the greater part of empire, or they're not doing it for manifest destiny. They're doing it for a better standard of living. They want to own large farms, mostly, or lumber mills. They want to enrich themselves and build a stable society over which they they have power. It's a democratizing thing in the sense that people from middling and lower middling parts of society in a you know, more established East can come out West. They can work their way like to owning 600 acres of land, uh, hundreds of cattle, and they could never have done that. I mean, Thomas York's a perfect example. He was a coal miner. He was imprisoned for a year or two on, on a crime. He left England to, to have a better chance of things, started a bit of coal mining, ended up owning uh, over six, 600 acres of land in, in Sumas, owning 400 or so head of cattle. He played a position in that society he never would have played in England. And no, you know, if you had t- talked to Thomas York about the greater empire and so forth, he would have crossed his brow and said, oh, okay. Because he would have been just as happy living south of the line and doing the exact same thing. That He tried that as well. Right. 
this is where colonialism, and this is this is so how tricky is it? We we see this as settlement. We see this as economic immigrants improving their life, social mobility, all of these things we think of as very positive. But that's what's driving colonialism. They are taking over the land to do that. And that's when settler colonialism works, it works because those people's private interests, when you, they're pursuing their private interests, and they'd pursue their private interests with much more vigor than they would pursue some great idea about the empire, that that pushes forward the colonial project. And it makes it so powerful. It's really well said. And yeah, you do see this confluence of personal and uh, the broader uh, state interest uh, at play in in cases like this. And I know we've talked primarily about the broad themes of, of the book because uh, I want people to go read the yes. book for the specifics, <laughs> yes. uh, right? Like, uh, because this is a, a book that, this is, uh, to me, a great case. And I would say the Strobel book that we talked about uh, last time you were on are, are cases of this where you take this, these micro events, uh, micro histories, but you attach them to the broader themes mm-hmm. and, and they're associated with uh, what's going on elsewhere and, and sort of things that we associate uh, on broad narratives. So uh, I'm assuming, I, but I don't know that this was a, a conscious choice on your part, but mm-hmm. could you just, uh, and maybe we'll, we'll, I'll let you get you out of here on this, that how hard is that? Uh, you know, cause mm-hmm. it, for me, like my historical research has always been CBC and CBC explicitly was trying to create national narratives yes. and national identity. So it's not hard for me to <laughs> tap into those types of broad themes because they're explicitly trying yes. to do that. But but when you're looking at these localized, smaller stories, how, how do you try to manage the explanation of the specific of what's going on, which you're very good at, yeah. to those broad national themes? Yes. I mean, <laughs> the history of the CBC, it's, yes. Um you can say it. It's easy. It's, you can it, say it. That's fine. It's like, <laughs> how many different ways can I describe my navel? <laughs> and everything they do is, is recorded. So <laughs> it's a very difficult thing to do. It's a lot harder than it, it, it uh, sounds like. <laughs> because it's, it's, it's not a prescriptive thing. It's not like saying, okay, here's, right. here's the formula you have to follow to do it. Here's the, the theoretical framework. You know, in academic history, they have their discourse. And, you know, the whole post-colonial is critique is about that as well. It's like, well, we have, we have to study the micro cases and show how they're part of these global forces. The, the problem is that to do that, you have to invent a new language. It's like... Einsteinian physics needs calculus. And for academic historians, they needed new skill, linguistic or vocabulary, conceptual ideas to get at the stuff that was left out. And it becomes hard for someone who's not part of that. It's it's very hard to, to read that and understand what's going on. So to do that, to, to try to, to write it in a way that is accessible to somebody who 
um, perhaps doesn't listen to CBC. No, I, who <laughs> <laughs> who uh, is not a, an academic historian. You have to understand what the academics are saying. Actually, you right. do. You have to understand. Okay, what are they getting at? And then it's it's the process of understanding first, and then really kind of making it to your own, and then telling the story. I'm. I firmly believe in in the power of narrative. We as humans need narrative. Most of our activities are meaning-giving activities, and that's what I'm interested in. And I take that kind of conceptual nugget and try to say, well, how is that working out in this instance, in this individual instance? And and let's keep picking at that individual instance, picking at it. It's like a, a knotted skein of wool or, or, or thread and you just keep pulling. And that's what it felt like about the Louis Sam thing is it's this knotted ball and you keep pulling out strings and that it's attached to another. Louis, the, 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 the murder of Louis Sam is, is associated to his father and how his father got sent to prison, which is associated to the disappearance of Henry Melville, who's, whom he's supposedly murdered, which is associated with Melville fighting with with York. And it's this ball, but within each, what's kind of the forces that are holding it together, pushing it, are the bigger ones. It means something. It's like the work, you can see the world in a a flower petal. Physics is is about the infinitely large and the infinitely small. And It is difficult because a person can get lost in, uh, in and become, you know, the antiquarian, you know, this little thing happened and this little thing and this little thing. But what does it mean? And, and, and a person has to be able to, to say, well, you know what, I'm going to fit it into, into this process. I think that the main thing happening is this process. And we're going to see how that works out. And this is the story that I, I want to tell about that and so when a book reads like it's it's easy to write it's often harder to write that's the hardest book to write it really is yeah you know i'm not going to compare myself to the the great novelists but when you read a, a book that you you say i haven't paid attention to that person's technique in a long time right Right. You know, or, yeah. or some books. It's like an official, it's like an official in sports. Like when you don't notice the referee, right. they're doing a really good That's job. That's right. You know, yeah. It's like some books, and I do, it's taken me years and years and years to kind of realize. You're reading some books, and it's like, okay, that's two pages. All right. That's another two. Okay. And, and then you read another where it's like, okay, I'm reading. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. That's 20 pages gone. Right. And yeah. then. Hold it, that's 24. And you try to pay attention to why, and you can't. Yeah. And it's about the rhythm of writing. It's about engaging the reader. And, and when it's, it's true events, you have to try to get, well, what's the human? There is a commonality here. There's a human commonality mm-hmm. for good and bad here. And that's what writing is supposed to be connecting the reader with the human humanity of the people in the past or the fictional people. And yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> we have been discussing some pretty big, big, big stuff. Yeah. Pretty, pretty, <laughs> yeah, pretty but, big thing. Yeah. But um, 
that's what I like reading. And uh, you know, it's like when yeah. Phil says, well, how do you find stuff to write? And he said, well, I just write what I like reading. And, uh, and that, that's what I do. <laughs> so, yeah. And, uh, certainly I would expect other people to like it as well as we say, like broad themes that we talked about here, but the book does get into the specifics of the case and connects it all uh, in a very effective way. So again, it's deadly neighbors, a tale of colonialism, cattle feuds, murder, and vigilantes in the far West. We've really only scratched the surface here. So Chad, if people want more on the book, pick up a copy or even learn about some of your other work, including Strobel. I will link to our discussion about the trials of Albert Strobel down in the show notes. Uh, but uh, where can they uh, find some more information about all the work you got going on? Well, Caitlin Press, of course, two eyes, no, no why I keep having to remind myself. Uh, their website, I guess, would have a bit of a biography of myself as well. You can order the book from them, any of my books, as well as Amazon. I'm not on, I know this is heresy, but I, I, I am not on social media. <laughs> uh, it's not a bad choice, it, Chad. It, you know, it's not a bad no, decision it, by any means. It used to be like, uh, like saying, I do not have cable. Or before that, <laughs> I do not have television. That, I mean, I'm that old. And it, you would be looked at as a, as a uh, whoa. But... Uh, the books are online. The books are at uh, a lot of the public libraries. I actually picked up my Strobel book. Yeah. Um, but I do encourage you to, 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 to buy it as I am. So, I mean, Amazon and, and, and Indigos as well would ha have those. But Caitlin Press certainly would be a good start. Yeah, and we'll we'll link to it uh, in the show notes. And uh, yeah. if you're, we've also head on over activehistory.ca, uh, the post associated with this, I will link to yeah. uh, all that stuff. And yeah, not being on social media, I'm sure the, <laughs> the Caitlin Press people might want to push it to it. You yeah. know, they they like those retweets and all that, but it's a cesspool sometimes, Chad. Yes. Like you're not you're not uh, missing that much, you know. Well, well, I think we've seen where the world can go when there's too many yeah too many tweets from. Yeah, uh, the wrong source <laughs> from the yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, so again, uh, encourage everybody to pick it up. Uh, Deadly Neighbors uh, and the Trials of Albert Strobel as well. Chad Reimer, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. So there you have it. My discussion with Chad Reimer. I thank him for his time. And of course, Deadly Neighbors: The Tale of Colonialism, Cattle Feuds, Murder, and Vigilantes in the Far West. Encourage you to check that out from our friends over at Caitlin press uh, as we said a lot of great research on the specifics of this case but also tying it into those bigger themes that dot canadian history a lot of wonderful material to unpack there and we really did only scratch the surface in that discussion so that will do it for this week thank you for listening everybody if you have not yet please do subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast do the likes ratings comments all that good stuff helps other people find the show keeps us growing you can also head on over to activehistory.ca. You can find all of our past episodes under the podcast tab. We've had a lot of great stuff over the past month. We had Mauritius Steckel-Druck talking about his documentary on Marcel Marceau, Sarah E.K. Smith, Kirsty Robertson from Remote Stars, Daniel Ross on Young Street, uh, Bethany Kilcrease, Falsy and Falsehood uh, navigating online misinformation. It's been a really good run, I think, of 
episodes and guests that I've very much enjoyed talking to. Hopefully you have as well. And, and we're going to try to continue this nice run as we head into the summer here. So do follow along, whether by subscribing, wherever you get your podcasts or check us out over on the website and certainly recommend all the great written material that is available on the site as well. And as always, if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, you can reach out historyslam at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. As that will do it for this week, we'll be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.